Welcome, everyone, um, to the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. Uh, Dr. Bill Takashara is, uh, is, our, is our Consulting Director of Low Vision Training for Braille Institute and also uh, Chief of Optometric Services for the Center for the Partially Sighted. And we're really, we're really um, pleased and, and privileged to have Dr. Tal Tawanzi on the line with us tonight as our special guest, um, Dr. 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 Tawansi is a noted retinal surgeon and has um, lectured and, and practiced all over the world, and we are just really pleased to have him tonight. We'll hear more about his um, his research and his, um, his some of the advances he's been making in the field of, of ROP and other retinal diseases. And I'll just at this point, I'll just turn it over to you, Dr. Bill, for um, this, for a great session. Great. Thank you very much, Sue, and uh, mm -hmm. thank you very much, Dr. Tawanzi, for taking the time to be here this evening. Thanks for having me. It's my, my privilege. Yes, the last time that you were on our show, you know, it was such popular demand that uh, you were highly requested, so uh, we're going to have <laughs> you back <laughs> more often. Okay. Let's make it a regular thing. That sounds great. Yeah, you're great, 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 great for our ratings there. And for all of you listeners out there, uh, one of the things we just want to remind you is that this is being recorded by Mr. Dick Burden with Airs LA. And Airs LA is a nonprofit organization that records podcasts for people who are blind and visually impaired. And you could listen to podcasts such as these, along with many other types of recorded magazines and lectures and other information about vision loss at www dot airs a i r s l a dot org that's www dot airs l a dot org and as usual it will also be on the braille institute webpage at www dot braille institute dot org so during our last lecture we talked a bit about some of the different types of procedures that are being used for children who suffer from retinopathy of prematurity and Dr. Twanzi, would you just very briefly review what is retinopathy of prematurity and who is at risk of developing this condition for some of our listeners who weren't here last time? Certainly, Bill. Uh, so retinopathy of prematurity is a uh, disease that occurs in, in babies who are born before the retina has a chance to fully mature. And it's a retinal vascular disease. Um, so the, the blood vessels that nourish the retina uh, normally develop inside the womb in a low oxygen environment. And they're programmed to uh, start from the optic nerve and travel from the center to the periphery of the retina. Uh, and they, they normally reach the periphery around the due date. And they require a low oxygen environment uh, as a stimulus for those blood vessels to grow. And children who are born uh, prematurely are born before the retinal vessels develop all the way. And when they're, they're born early, they're exposed to higher levels of, of oxygen in the ambient environment or in many of these babies who are, who are preemies. Uh, they require supplemental oxygen, sometimes on a ventilator or sometimes with, with uh, cannulas. And th those high oxygen levels are important to, to sustain the baby, but also 
have uh, a side effect of suppressing the blood vessel growth in the retina. And when that, that blood vessel uh, suppression occurs, um, that can alter the, the way the blood vessels develop. And in some cases, abnormal vessels can grow. And these abnormal blood vessels have a pathologic role. They can bleed, they can contract, and they can lead to retinal detachment or retinal dragging or, or other alterations of the normal anatomy that can lead to vision loss. And this is um, the uh, uh, most significant reversible or treatable form of vision loss in countries that have uh, the ability to s sustain premature babies in neonatal intensive care units. So it's a, it's a very epi important epidemiologic problem that, that's now um, covered, you know, involves countries uh, not only in the United States and Europe, but in Asia and Africa and uh, Australia. Throughout the world, it's, it's, uh, it is a prevalent problem that we're trying to deal with um, in terms of both prevention and in terms of treatment. So generally, if a child is born prematurely before 32 weeks, it's really critical that they're being seen, examined by a retina specialist such as yourself. And if you do happen to see something in these very, very young children, what do you usually do with them, Dr. Twanzi? So we, you're absolutely right, Bill. We identify children who are at risk, and typically those are under 32 weeks gestational age or under birth weight of uh, uh, 1,250 grams. And those babies are screened through a program, and, and every um, NICU has, has a formal uh uh, screening and treating programs, so we, we examine these babies on a weekly basis, and we look for alterations in the way the blood vessels are developing. And uh, we, once we, we identify these alterations, we uh, categorize them by our staging system, and um, we have uh, a, a different severities of retinopathy of prematurity going from stage zero to stage five, and whether they have uh, plus disease or not. And, and we, we accurately document these findings in the chart. Often we will take photographs as well as draw pictures, and we'll closely monitor those children. And, and children that, uh, that show uh, progression of retinopathy of, of prematurity are monitored more closely. And if they reach a certain level of disease, then um, we will intervene with one of our therapeutic modalities, uh, be it uh, laser or uh, injection of a vaccine inside the eye, to try to prevent the progression towards retinal detachment. And we're usually very successful in doing that. And also, it, you know, prior to the formation of, of a critical level of retinopathy and prematurity, we also um, make suggestions to the neonatologist as to uh, certain things they can do systemically, like titrate the oxygen levels uh, or give transfusions or give uh, steroids, for example, 
different things that can maybe um, alter the way the retinal blood vessels are developing. So let's talk about some of those treatments first. What about laser? What is the purpose of laser? Why do you laser the retina when you do see these abnormal blood vessels growing? Well, that's a great question, Bill. Um, and it's not intuitively obvious, uh, but what happens with retinopathy or prematurity, as I mentioned, the blood vessels grow to a certain point, and um, more peripheral to where the blood vessels are, you have retina that is devoid of circulation. And when there's exposure to the oxygen, um, there's a process of uh, what's called vasoobliteration where the normal capillaries are, or the, the, the tissue that's programmed to develop into uh, retinal blood vessels has a kind of a toxic exposure to oxygen, and those blood vessels start to shut down. Those primitive blood vessels start to shut down. And so the retina that has absence of circulation uh, is now... Uh, um, with time becomes more metabolically active and more starved for oxygen. And so you have an area of peripheral retina that we call it ischemic. In other words, it's, it's, it's not getting enough circulation for its needs. And as a consequence, it, it secretes uh, a growth factor into the eye. Uh, the most well-studied one is called vascular endothelial growth factor. And it secretes abnormal levels of this growth factor that cause uh, the, this pathologic new blood vessel formation to develop. That these are the pathologic vessels that can lead to retinal detachment and hemorrhage in the eye. And the goal of uh, the immediate treatment is to arrest these blood vessels. And one way to arrest these abnormal blood vessels is to suppress the the formation of vascular endothelial growth factor. And when we treat the peripheral retina with laser, uh, what, that ha what that does is it decreases the metabolic re requirements of the retina. And so the retina stops secreting this vascular endothelial growth factor, which is the agent that causes the pathologic new blood vessels from, from forming. So it alters the biochemistry inside the eye to make it more favorable for the abnormal blood vessels to stop growing and for the intrinsic vessels to continue to develop. Now, what's the negative? Is there any negative consequence of lasering that peripheral retina? Does it kill that part of the retina so that part of the retina will never be able to see? Well, um, Yes, there, there's definitely some potential uh, downside when you, when you do um, when you do a laser spot to the retina. Um, you're, you're basically creating a scar where where that retinal tissue was, and so that retinal tissue will not function as well as it did um, if it had been vascularized and um, had healthy metabolism. So, uh, in other words, um, the, the retina that gets treated with laser, that one laser spot area is an area that doesn't have the potential for developing vision. Now, 
when you when you do laser, first of all, there's different concentrations of laser. Sometimes we'll do laser in a light concentration so that there's still some potential for vision to develop in that within that retina that was lasered because there's skip areas in between the laser spots where the retina can still have viable function. Uh, the, the second thing is um, the location of the laser makes a difference because uh, sort of the division area, the retina is actually more redundant, and some of the retina doesn't subserve vision. In other words, the retina anterior or more in front of the equator is retina that that exists in the eye but really doesn't serve vision because just because of the geometry of the eye, the retina at the very front part, um, the very periphery, uh, doesn't really serve the visual field so that you can actually laser the retina uh, an anterior or in front of the equator without compromising vision much. But when you start to extend further back towards the central part of the retina in the middle of the retina, that's where you can start to get visual field loss or basically some um, some tightening of, of the peripheral vision so that the child is no longer able to see as far peripherally as they otherwise would. That is one of the most significant things that we think about when we do laser treatment. There are other potential side effects uh, of, of laser treatment, uh, as there is with any surgical procedure. But with laser, there's the potential of creating a cataract. There's, uh, there's probably worsening myopia that occurs. And there's some other potential uh, rare but serious complications like, like glaucoma or anterior segment ischemia. Having said that, it should be noted that laser treatment for ROP is uh, one of the most cost-effective procedures in medicine in terms of the benefit that the child receives versus the adverse outcome. In fact, there was one study out of uh, the Wills Hospital in Philadelphia who that, that they found that laser treatment for ROP is actually the most cost-effective procedure in all of medicine so that, you know, it, it's a very vision-saving procedure. And prior to laser, you know, ch children were, were um, losing vision and going on to retinal detachment much more frequently. So it's a very beneficial procedure and one that, that we've been doing now for approximately 30 years with, with reliably good outcomes. But, you know, as we, we progress in our, uh, you know, in, in the field of medicine, we always try to improve on things, and we're hoping to, to get to the point where we don't have to do laser on children and the, the, where they can develop a full retinal vasculature all the way to the periphery without, without forming retinal detachment. And that's ultimately our goal, and that's where uh, newer treatments with, with pharmacologic therapy have, have come into play. Yeah, tell us, how does Avastin or Lucentis work with children 
who have retinopathy of prematurity. Do, do these medications also prevent the formation of these abnormal blood vessels? Yes. Well, you know, Avastin um, came on the, the medical scene around 2004, 2005. It was starting to be used in ophthalmology. It was actually uh, these drugs are are antibodies uh, against the growth factor, the vascular endothelial growth factor. Uh, so there are chemicals that bind that growth factor and, and neutralize it or prevent it from causing the, the pathologic new blood vessel formation. And so these drugs initially were, were developed for, for use in, in um, cancer, the Avastin drug was, and uh, Lucentis, which is a cousin of Avastin, was, was developed specifically for use in, in macular degeneration inside the eye. But these are, these are drugs that can be injected in the eye, and they can stop this vascular endothelial growth factor, which we call VEGF, from working. And um, they've, been, they've become extremely popular for all kinds of retinal vascular diseases, including macular degeneration, uh, retinal vein occlusion, diabetic retinopathy are the most common thing. But we've also found that they work very effectively in retinopathy or prematurity. In fact, uh, our group participated in a, in a major national um, uh, multi-center prospective randomized study, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine earlier uh, in 2011, uh, which showed that that in in cases of retinopathy or prematurity that were aggressive, that when one injects the uh, um, anti-VEGF antibody, the Avastin, one can alter the course of of the disease in a favorable manner, and we we were specifically interested in very aggressive forms of retinopathy and prematurity where the abnormal blood vessels are uh, starting to occur in, in zone one and posterior zone two, in other words, in the very central part of the retina. And when children have that very posterior form of retinopathy and prematurity, there's a, a large area of retina that has not been vascularized. And so if one does laser treatment on those children, they end up with very significant visual field compromise. And so those children, we were hoping with Avastin to alter the course of the disease to suppress the retinopathy and, and allow the normal vessels to grow out more peripherally so that they wouldn't be, be stuck with severe um, visual field loss, uh, and also um, to alter the very aggressive forms of ROP that sometimes don't respond well to laser um, to prevent retinal detachment. And that, and that, found, uh, that study found a very significant treatment effect, and it compared laser treatment to Avastin treatment. The child 
was randomized to one of the two treatments. This was um, um, performed under the guidelines of the FDA under, you know, very strict uh, ethical rules uh, and, and with informed consent of the, of the parents. And so the, the children were compared uh, once they were randomized to receive one treatment versus the other. And although all the, the children did well, the, the children who had Avastin's treatment showed a lower recurrence of the retinopathy than uh, those that had laser. And that was the preliminary finding of the study. But now that we have even more experience with Avastin um, than, than, than we did a year ago when that study was published, we know that we can give it in those aggressive posterior cases, and it gives the opportunity for the retinal blood vessels to grow up more peripherally so that the child, the, the, the need for laser treatment can, can be delayed, and sometimes it can be avoided altogether. But those children who have a Vastin treatment require significantly more follow-up because the Vastin suppresses the retinopathy of prematurity, but it also suppresses the development of the normal intrinsic vasculature. It basically freezes everything. And then it takes a lot longer for um, the blood vessels to start growing again. And, and in many cases, they grow all the way to the periphery, and you don't need to treat them, and they do very well. Or in other cases, they grow some, but they don't reach all the way to the periphery, and there can be some abnormal, um, what we call smoldering forms of retinopathy or prematurity that occur later. And uh, I just did a study uh, where we presented it at the American Society of Retina Specialists, looking at the vascular patterns that occur after a vascular treatment uh, as the child gets older. And we found some interesting aberrations in the, in the circulation that occurs after a vascular treatment um, where some, some late intervention may be required, like late laser. But, but the advantage of, of doing it later is that you don't need to uh, treat the retina that's very posterior. You, you're basically treating anterior to the equator. And so you're not compromising the visual field the way you would if you had treated early on in some of those aggressive cases. So basically, the Avastin types of medications, um, this is something that you would consider, depending on the location of where you see the retinopathy of prematurity, what part of the retina. And, and the question to that is, how often do you have to inject the medication into the eye of the child? Well, you know, you're absolutely right, Bill. It, dep it depends on the type of retinopathy and prematurity. And um, we actually divide retinopathy and prematurity into sort of three types or three flavors. One is the standard retinopathy and prematurity that occurs in um, mid to anterior zone two, and that, that's probably about 80% of, of cases, so about four out of five uh, occur in sort of the, 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 the mid to anterior zone two. 
And for those cases, um, right now, we're, we're using laser in the majority of them um, still. Um, and uh, those cases do well with laser. Uh, they don't get much myopia or visual field compromise. There's the second type of retinopathy in prematurity, which is increasing in prevalence, and that's called aggressive posterior retinopathy in prematurity. It's formerly known as rush disease, where you have a very, very tiny baby. Typically, these babies are in the 22 to 26 weeks gestational age range and have birth weights under 1,000 grams. And... And they can get very aggressive disease that's very central, very posterior. And that type of case, now we treat with Avastin first because we want to give the chance, the, 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 the child the opportunity for the blood vessels to go further prior to any intervention. And those are, those are about 15 uh, to 18% of, of cases of retinopathy and prematurity. But with, with our increasing success of our, our neonatology colleagues, they're actually sustaining more and more of these very small babies, um, sometimes under 400 grams. Uh, and so the, in, the incidence of this aggressive posterior type of retinopathy and prematurity is actually on the rise, especially in countries like the U.S. and in Europe and Canada, and those are the, the cases that are best candidates for the Avastin treatment. Um, there's also a third group of, of, of retinopathy, which we call smoldering retinopathy of prematurity, which was first described here in L.A. about 10 years ago, and that is a, is a very delayed form of ROP where you'd only want to use laser. So... Um, and, and that that has doesn't have the aggressive features. So really, um, with with the Avastin therapy, and, and this differs from one center to another, but really, in the majority of centers, it's it's maybe twenty uh, percent of cases, maybe up to thirty percent of cases where we're using Avastin as first line. There's some cases where you it's kind of intermediate, and you could use one treatment or the other. Um, uh, but still, laser still has an um, important role um, in, in treatment because laser, once you do laser, um, you, you actually don't have to worry about those potential late complications that can occur after Avastin treatment. And one of the things we're looking at at this point is whether maybe altering the dose of Avastin may uh, potentially influence the way the blood vessels develop in a more favorable way. Perhaps a lower dose of Avastin would, would prevent the, the blood vessels from slowing down as much and maybe allow the intrinsic vessels to reach the, 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 the periphery more often. And so right now we're, we're kind of in a, in a transition period where we're learning <clears throat> about what dose of Avastin to use, and in which cases um, we we can use Avastin in a more favorable way than, than others. Uh, but when we do use Avastin, we, we do require 
that the child be followed a lot more closely. And in my practice, I recommend a blood flow study uh, as the child gets older, usually around 60 to 70 weeks post-conception age. I recommend a blood flow study so that one can actually study the circulation in detail and know where the blood vessels have reached and what areas of retina are still devoid of circulation that may that may uh, result in complications later. Now, tell us, you, you had mentioned that Kenalog is another medication that you are now using, and can you tell us how does that help the child with OP? Certainly. So Kenalog um, was, uh, was a, is a steroid drug, and it's, it, it also has some properties of, of inhibiting abnormal vascular development, but it's not specific to VEGF. It's a nonspecific uh, inhibitor of, of uh, those abnormal blood vessels. And prior to the availability of, uh, of Astin, we did studies uh, at our center using Kenalog in cases where laser was given and um, the, the, the child had an incomplete response to laser. In other words, there's still heavy neovascular activity, heavy bleeding, and progression to retinal detachment. And uh, we, we were injecting Kenalog in, in the eyes and found, and found that it did have a, more, a favorable effect on the retinopathy. And in some cases, it prevented uh, vascular activity from progressing and it prevented retinal detachment. And in other cases uh, where retinal detachment occurred, it prevented, um, uh, it, it prevented bleeding during surgery and made surgery safer so that one could actually repair the retinal detachment in a safer manner. <clears throat> now, uh, with, with, with the Avastin, we, we tend to prefer Avastin because it's more specific and it does, it's not associated with uh, some other side effects of Kenalog, like like uh, pressure elevation in the eye. However, um, there are certain advantages to the, the Kenalog particle. It tends to stay in the eye for a longer period of time. And um, we, we've discovered we, we've discovered a, a, a certain role for Kenalog in patients uh, in the in the modern treatment paradigm, and, and that has to do with patients. Who had laser, but have have uh, failed the laser, and uh, in other words, the laser wasn't enough to suppress the neovascular activity. And in those cases, we've tried giving Kenalog, but uh, I'm sorry, we've tried giving Avastin, but we've discovered that the Avastin escapes the eye through the laser. Uh, laser creates some fenestration within the the, the blood retinal barrier. Um, and so the Avastin molecule escapes the eye quickly uh, after laser treatment, and it gets into the systemic circulation, doesn't stay in the eye, and so it can cause potential systemic problems, and it's not as beneficial to the eye. And in those cases, we have found Kenalog to be beneficial because it tends to stay around in the eye and suppress the ambassador activity. So. Um, after laser, if, if there's still an incomplete response, we're, we're likely to give Kenalog over Avastin in, in the current paradigm. 
Now, Dr. Tawanza, we often see many of the children who come to our center, the children who are premature, it seems that there are many of them who have suffered from different sorts of brain hemorrhaging. It may be an intraventricular hemorrhage or other children have a diagnosis of <laughs> hydrocephalus. Can you uh, explain what, what seems to be the reason that the premature children often have these types of bleeding within the brain? Yeah, that is, a, that is an important problem, and um, that, uh, that also can affect um, visual development in a very significant way. Uh, basically, um, the uh, primitive, you know, the fetal brain tissue um, can also have a toxic response to uh, premature birth and exposure to uh, higher levels of oxygen. And so there can be, um, there's like a a germinal matrix of brain tissue that's very sensitive. Um, So when there's a disturbance in in the ambient oxygen uh, or the oxygen delivery, that can can influence that tissue and cause it to, to bleed and those intraventricular hemorrhages can be uh, associated uh, with a rise in intracranial pressure and secondary hydrocephalus. And that can uh, compromise uh, the, the cerebral cortex in the occipital area where, where vision is processed. And it also can uh, compromise the optic nerves that travel through the cerebral spinal fluid. Um, and cause optic atrophy, and those things can also influence visual development in a premature baby. So in some cases, we are successful in feeding the retinopathy of prematurity, but the vision can be influenced by, by what's happening inside the brain. Are there procedures that um, the doctors can perform inside uh, the hospital to attempt to observe any kind of bleeding within the brain, or do they... Well, certainly, they they can monitor intracranial bleeding. Um, You know, usually, um, that's... Usually, ultrasound of the head is the most um, common way to follow. It's easy to do, and um, you can follow the, the child. And, and monitor, uh, look for hemorrhaging. And sometimes, um, um, you know, if more information is required, then an MRI is performed. But certainly it's routine for um, premature babies to have one or more ultrasound studies um, done looking for, for intraventricular hemorrhage. And um, there are, fortunately, pediatric neurosurgeons who are available um, to deal with that problem. Um, in some cases, shunt procedures are required, which can, can uh, prevent the pressure from, from elevating, and that can be obviously very beneficial um, to, to prevent neural damage. Yeah, and that's really a very, very, very frustrating thing in many situations <laughs> as, as parents learn that the treatments 
that have been provided by the ophthalmologist for ROP have been successful, but they can't understand why their child isn't seen, and it's often that the optic nerve or the, the occipital lobe of the brain has been damaged from that brain bleed. Yeah, that's, that's often um, a problem that we encounter, and we certainly um, are frustrated as well by it. But uh, the good news is that, um, number one, the neonatologists are incre- increasingly vigilant about screening for that, and um, when they detect it, there are interventions that can be done um, to, you know, stop it from progressing. Unfortunately, there isn't much that can be done to stop the actual bleeding, but you can stop the, the, the secondary pressure rises, and they are very good about doing that. And then the other thing that needs to be kept in mind is that, um, you know, if the retina is attached and has good circulation, um, and there's some compromise to the optic nerve, it doesn't eliminate the potential for that child to develop vision. In fact, there's one thing about the optic nerve is that there's, uh, there's actually redundancy. There's actually an excess of nerve fibers within the optic nerve serving vision. There's actually about 10 times more nerve tissue there than what's the minimal requirement to have visual function. So you can have some damage to the optic nerve um, and even the cerebral cortex, but still develop vision. But in many cases, it's slower to develop. And those those children do respond well to uh, uh, intensive visual development therapy as, as, you know, done by um, the Braille Institute and Foundation for the Junior Blind, and we're for, kind of fortunate in the LA area to have these outstanding resources of, of of vision development experts that can work with the children and and teach the the, the families how how to um, stimulate uh, the children and to develop vision. And in many cases, after years of intensive work, you'll see um, um, milestones being achieved so that. You know, in a normal non-femic child, usually by the age of six months, you'll reach sort of uh, the plateau in terms of visual development, whereas in one of these other preemies, it can be five years before one one finally maximizes the, the, the vision. And so it, it can be rewarding, but it's just intense work. Yeah, the, la- the last topic that I wanted to talk to you about before we open it up to questions is the topic about retinal detachments. I understand that with retinopathy of prematurity, when these blood vessels leak, it often results in the formation of scar tissue, and it literally tears a retina off. And what's new in retinal reattachment surgery? And uh, actually today I just saw one of your... Uh, children that you you literally restored vision by reattaching the retina. Is there any new procedure that's being performed for children who have retinal detachment? Well, uh, that's an excellent question, Bill. Obviously, um, w- 
we need to keep our first priority is to keep the retina attached because if the retina is detached, um, nothing else will follow in terms of vision. I mean, we we try we can try to do other things, but if the retina is not working, then the optic nerve and the cerebral cortex are not going to work. So. Uh, it's our first priority to make sure that the retina is as healthy as possible. <clears throat> and um, retinal detachment surgery was first uh, developed about 60 to 70 years ago with scleral buckling techniques, which uh, where we put a band around the outside of the eye and indent the eye wall and support the retina that way and drain fluid from underneath the retina. And that was sort of the first major milestone in retinal reattachment surgery. Um, and then after that um, came vitrectomy surgery where we actually go inside the vitreous cavity and remove the gel and the scar tissue and the blood vessels that are pulling on the retina. And um, by, by cutting those membranes, we allow the retina to relax. And uh, the, the sort of the third major milestone was the use of vitreous substitutes so that when we go in to do the vitrectomy, we can also um, fill the eye with uh, an agent that can be used to, to push the retina and tamponade the retina and hold it in position. And so there are vitreous substitutes like air and gas and silicone oil, <clears throat> and uh, helon, which is a viscoelastic, which we can all use in different situations as a, as a, as a tool to help us in the reattachment of the retina. And then uh, a, a, another milestone uh, that, that came about was the use of smaller gauge vitrectomy, where the original uh, vitrectomy gauges were 20 gauge or higher, but now um, there are 23 and 25 and 27 gauge vitrectomy uh, instruments available, which are uh, smaller and smaller diameter uh, instruments um, to the point that our incisions are you know less than a millimeter uh, in diameter when we go in, and that's less invasive to the eye and. and and also gives us uh, a chance to avoid damage to the lens and and heal faster. And so that's been – and also get into tighter spaces, and that's also been revolutionary. Um, and we have other uh, adjuncts like uh, uh, systems that are, are helpful in visualization during retina surgery, um, uh, such as uh, uh, endoscopes and uh, panoramic uh, wide field uh, uh, viewing systems using inverting optics, which has made our visualization better during the vitrectomy surgeries. And then <clears throat> um, more uh, recently, now we have um, we have pharmacologic means to help assist us during retina surgery, and for example, Avastin and Kenalog, as we mentioned, 
um, are uh, agents that are, that are now used for retinopathy and premature. They're also used in in the, the, the surgical management of, of retinopathy and prematurity because when they're injected in the eye, uh, one of the side effects of these agents is that they decrease the amount of, of uh, engorgement of the retinal vessels and they minimize bleeding uh, that, that occurs during um, retinal surgery and they can make our, our, our surgery um, quicker and less traumatic uh, with less chance of, of scar tissue forming after surgery. Um, and there are other pharmacologic agents that are specific to surgery only. Uh, the most exciting one is plasmin, uh, which is a plasmin is an enzyme that can cleave um, uh, some of the uh, molecules that are responsible for um, the, the vitreous attachment to the retina. And in some cases, um, these agents, uh, Avastin and, uh, and Plasmin and Tenalog, sometimes just an injection alone can help reattach the retina without even requiring surgery. And <clears throat> that's because um, when, when retinal detachments occur in retinopathy of prematurity, part of them is ex exudative and part of them are tractional. Exudative means that the retinal detachment is occurring because the blood vessels are leaking heavily. <clears throat> and um, one of the effects of, of Kenalog and Avastin is it, it suppresses vascular leakage. Um, and so the exudative component of the retinal detachment can go, can go away. And um, the injection of, of plasma can sometimes cleave these membranes and, 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 and open up planes that will let, allow the tractional component of the retinal detachment to go away. And sometimes these agents are mixed so that one can, can use both of them together and and take care of both the tractional exudative co component of the retinal attachment mm -hmm. without actually having to make an incision and go inside the eye. Okay. So um, pharmacotherapy is, is probably the new wave um, uh, that's, that's happening in retina surgery, and it's certainly going to be applied to retinopathy prematurity. Gosh, that's just really, really amazing. So as we look at all ends of what are some of the medical complications of ROP, there are now really many treatments, whether it's the ROP itself or identifying leakages within the brain or using pharmaceuticals to assist in reattaching a retina. Uh, this is why we're seeing children who are as young as 22 or 23 weeks gestation where these children are doing quite well. So, boy, we thank yeah, you for all of your great definitely work. Definitely the options are, are opening up. You know, the, the paradigm is getting more complex, but we have, we have a lot more tools available to us now that we didn't have five or ten years ago. And so we can, we can recognize the situation early, and we can anticipate earlier treatment, and we have different options in those treatments. So hopefully we can uh, respond to the disease in a more anticipatory manner and keep the child out of trouble, and that's certainly our goal. And uh, it's kind of now becoming like a chess match um, 
both in terms of prevention and treatment, we, we try to come up with strategies to stay one step ahead to keep the child out of trouble. That's our goal. Yes, and it's, and it's very important that the teachers and all of the earlier intervention specialists and the teachers for the visually impaired, that they keep up to date with all of these advances so that they can inform parents and make certain the kids are getting the best care that they can. Do you have time for a couple of questions, Dr. Twanzi? Absolutely. I'm going to get a quick drink of water, and I'm going to be <laughs> just one second, and I'll That'll be right be back with you. Okay. That'll be perfectly fine. Get your, get your questions lined up. Yes. Okay. Uh, so if all of you would go ahead and unmute your phone by pressing star six, and we'll be ready to take some questions for Dr. Tuanzi during these next uh, five minutes. But, uh, Sue, isn't it just amazing? Wow. I, am, oh. I'm, I, I just took so many notes. I mean, I'm, it's just amazing that what's going on. I... Um, it's, I think the 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 answers that we're seeing with Avastin and the pharmacological pharmacological drugs are just it's it's just it's mind and mind boggling <laughs> to me in some ways. With some of the kids we've seen in the last like say three or four years, um, some of the advances and some of the very low birth weight babies we're seeing, um, just you know, it's just amazing that these treatments exist and well, they are doing so well. Well, the real, really amazing thing that I am observing in the clinic with the children who have ROP is that when the ROP is affecting the central area of the retina near the macula, when they are receiving Avastin, these children don't have the blind spots or the tunnel vision that the children who have received laser surgery and had ROP in that central area. So... As a result, their their functional vision is much greater. So um, let's go, Dr. Twans. We've got about five minutes. So let me see. Does anybody have a question for Dr. Cal Twanzi? That was an excellent lecture. Uh, any questions? Yeah, I have a question, Dr. Twanzi. This is Sue. <laughs> I have a quick one. Well, it's not a quick one. Um, I, I, the question I have is regarding to retinal detachment. Um, when you have been able to restore... Um, basically reattach the retina and the potential then for vision again exists in a a more strategic manner. And and you begin to see noticing the child beginning to develop good visual, some visual skills and some maybe some shadow vision and some some ability to reach for objects or such. And then you notice, and then obviously in some situations where the retina, retina will detach again or begin to show yeah. signs of detachment. Obviously getting in, into the clinic and getting into getting him to see you is, is, is crucial. But if the retina detaches again, do you, what do you see as the potential for visual loss within the period of time that you've worked to see the gains? Is, is there a factor there that we should be looking at? Or how we how we can help to measure that? I guess a lot of it's observation, but I thought you might have some insights for us. Sure. Well, uh, the most critical area, of course, for the retina in terms of whether it's attached or detached is the macula, and mm-hmm. uh, which is a very central part. And um, when that detaches early, there's a, a very significant um, insult that occurs. So, uh, and the earlier in life that that 
happens, the, the harder, the more work it's going to require to regain function in the macula. And uh, certainly also the length of time that it's detached is, is important. So um, when we're doing screening for ROP and trying to manage ROP, our first and foremost goal is to prevent the macula from detaching, and and if it does detach, to get it reattached as quickly as possible, uh, so that we may you know rush in the surgery to do scleroblastoma or vitrectomy um, as quickly as possible. So we want to suppress the vascular activity, make sur surgery safe, and then go in there and do the surgery to prevent the macula from detaching or reattach it right away. And when, um, when it happens in the perinatal period, in the first few months of life, that's the most critical period. Um, once the child gets older and they, they have macular function, um, then it's easier to gain it back uh, if the macula becomes detached. Um, and it's also technically easier because you don't have the aggressive vessels that exist um, in the acute ROP uh, process. It becomes now chronic ROP, which is less vascular and more scar tissue, and that's usually easier to manage surgically. Uh, but, but certainly in those cases, um, the, the chronicity of the detachment is important, you know, how long it's been detached. And we have uh, better success in terms of regaining visual function uh, and retraining the eye to have good vision if we can get to it relatively quickly. Okay. And so one thing we recommend is that, you know, parents um, test their children by covering one eye and covering the other eye and make sure that mm -hmm. both eyes are working the way they usually do because sometimes kids, will develop a retinal detachment and they'll be um, without any complaints because they'll still be functional with the other eye. And by the time they actually see us, it's, it's been going on for a while. And this is one of the reasons why we tend to, to want to follow the kids in our clinic every few months to, mm -hmm. uh, as they get older to make sure that none of these things are going undetected. Right, right. That's good advice to give families then when they're... You know, dealing with all the, the roller coaster. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sure. Are there any other questions out there for Dr. Twanzi? Okay, good, because I have a couple. <laughs> Dr. Twanzi, one of the questions that parents of children who have ROP ask is should their children, now that they're six or seven or eight, should they avoid playing contact sports? Should they not play soccer or should they not play baseball for the risk of hitting their head and that may detach the retina? Yeah. You know, I'm often asked that question, and um, uh, it's a difficult one to give a straight answer to um, because, uh, you know, I, I'm one who uh, really believes that uh, physical education and sports activities are really important for the overall development of a child. And I, I try not to discourage a child from um, playing sports 
if they want to, because I, I, I just think that's an important activity. So I really um, look hard at what evidence we have, and we don't have a lot of, of great scientific evidence to make concrete re recommendations in a lot of cases. So we kind of have to decide, well, what makes sense? And, you know, um, children who have retinopathy and prematurity, if they've required intervention like laser or Avastin, they, they probably, you know, in most cases, their peripheral retina is thinner than, than an average child, and they are, they're more prone to retinal tears uh, with direct trauma to the eye. And so I think it's really important uh, that those children be wearing uh, eye protection during sports. If they're playing basketball, they definitely need to, to be wearing gog protective goggles with a strap, which is probably a good idea for any child who, who plays basketball. You know, we see quite a number of injuries from fingers going in the eyes and, and so forth. And certainly if they're playing football, I recommend not only goggles, but goggles plus a helmet. Um, it, 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 so I think in the majority of children who, who just had ROP uh, that either resolved on its own or, or, or maybe have had treatment with a Avastin or laser but never developed a retinal detachment, I, I don't prevent them from um, playing sports uh, other than with a strong recommendation that, that they always wear eye protection, uh, but they can still play contact sports. Now, if they if they've had retinal detachment or retinal tears, or are very severely myopic, or they have um, uh, clinical features of vitreoretinal degeneration that's that's visible on examination, um, in those cases, uh, you know, I I tend I tend to be a little bit more conservative with them and say, you know, maybe you should avoid sports that are uh, involved contact, you know, uh, like football and, and basketball and avoid roller coaster rides and maybe, you know, direct the child to other sports that may be uh, a little bit safer, like swimming, track, uh, gymnastics, and so forth. Um, hey, great, great. Well, that's very, very helpful. Well, we want to sure. thank you again, Dr. Twanzi, for all of this information, this is extremely helpful. We really appreciate that very much. And is there a contact number if anybody has a question or perhaps if someone wants to make an appointment? Do you have a contact number? Certainly. Uh, our office is Children's Retina Institute, and we have our main office is in Eagle Rock, uh, uh, which is um, here in Los Angeles. And the, the, uh, the phone number there is, uh, 323 257 uh, 3300 or 257 3937. And we do have uh, uh, satellite clinics all the way from um, um, Madeira in Central California to Bakersfield and south to uh, uh, Long Beach and Orange and, and further uh, east to Loma Linda. Uh, but 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 all those uh, all those clinics can can be accessed through our central office at that number. You can also email us at uh, office at childrensretina.com. That's plural, childrensretina without apostrophe. 
com, or you can always uh, text or call me on my cell phone, which is 323-313-5757 if you have any questions. And I'm happy to, to talk to patients. And, and Dr. Twan, you, uh, you're, you're amazing. I think that yeah. <laughs> uh, you're, you're going to need a helicopter soon. But we want to yeah. thank you again for all of this information, and we thank all of you for listening tonight. Remember, you could hear this podcast at the Braille Institute's website at www.brailleinstitute.org and also at AirsLA at www.airsla.org. And uh, we'll be seeing all of you next month, perhaps. We'll be having it actually on Tuesday, February 17th, excuse me, February 7th, February 7th, 2012 at 7.30. So we'll be giving you recommendations for when you're making an appointment for your child. Uh, Mr. Burden, we thank you for recording, and we hope to see all of you next month. Good night, everybody.